and welcome to Unsourced Wall. My name is Elvis, and as always, I'm your host. Alright, so let's get on right into it. There's going to be a special review on Captain Marvel. Don't worry, I'll let you know when to skip for spoilers. But first things first, let's move on to some news topics. In movie news, we have a brand new trailer for Shazam! and the embargo being lifted on social media reviews. The trailer itself is actually very sparse. It's basically just extended looks at everything we've been seeing in the teasers and TV spots, just rounding out the tone and feel of the movie and characters from those rather than showcasing anything new but the story. And, well, that's actually gotten a lot of praise. People are really digging that it's not trying to spoil or show much, but that it's trying to sell itself on how the film will come off in personality. My main concern is that Zachary Levy still seems a bit forced in terms of the hey he's a kid type humor and that the movie's color palette is still kind of bland. But everything else looks like a good time. There are some good gags in there and a real sense of lightheartedness and self-awareness. The social media reviews seem to feel the same, which gives me some real hope as we get closer to the release date. So yeah, Fingers crossed. There's also been a few new rumors on DC's future projects. A slight one is that the Rock's Black Adam movie is actually going to be a JSA movie, with the main heroes going against Black Adam being Hawkman, Adam Smasher, and Stargirl. I don't really put much stock in that, especially since we're getting a Stargirl show and the JSA there. Plus, it feels too dispersed for a Black Adam movie. Still, I can't deny that the idea of Hawkman versus Black Adam would be awesome to see in a movie. Just go full on reincarnation, longevity, vendetta. It'd be fun as hell. The second rumor is that James Gunn's Suicide Squad sequel will introduce the characters of Peacemaker, Polka Dot Man, King Shark, and Ratcatcher. Who knows if any of that is true, but Peacemaker? Hell yeah! I'd love to see him actually go and be a one-man rival to the main team, running a parallel mission to the squad. That'd be awesome! Seriously. Either way, still, fingers crossed for either of these two, although one of them I do trust and believe a little bit more than the other. There's not much in MCU or third-party movie news. Other than that, Marvel has recently said that they feel the world is ready for a gay superhero movie lead, which I have to say, duh? That was a bad turn of phrase for them because it feels so short-sighted and blind. Of course the world is ready. It's kind of obvious that it's them that haven't been. Oh, and apparently the Morbius movie has started production and the Black Widow movie has completed its rewritten script and is ready for casting. Good luck to both of those. Moving on to TV news, perhaps the biggest and most unfortunate news is the sudden and sad passing of Luke Perry. He suffered a massive stroke earlier this week and died from it a day or so later. It's honestly very tragic and I want to extend my deepest condolences to his family and friends. He was gone too soon. Apparently the rest of the episodes of this season of Riverdale will bear dedications to his memory. Haven't seen that show in ages, but I wish him the best of luck in this trying time. Our second bit of TV news is that Arrow is finally going to be ending with its 8th season, with a 10 episode run. Now before anyone else cheers like I did, it seems like the CW is using this to springboard a phase 2 of their DC TV show universe. But still, finally. And it didn't even break Smallville's 10 season record. One thing I found funny was that people are acting that because it's the final season and it's only be 10 episodes, that's going to be full on plot, which is severely underestimating the power of the CW to pad shit out. Let's move on to some quick shots. The first is that Adrienne Barbeau, who played the female love interest and main character of the original 1982 Swamp Thing movie, has been cast in the upcoming TV show. Since the two characters she was based on are already cast, he leaves it up in the air on who she will be. But it is fun to hear and I hope for the best. And for the last bit of TV news is that the second season of The End of the Fucking World has star production. Fuck yes, I love that show and it was pretty much just a stray bullet series in all but name. I hope they do just as well with this next installment that they did with the first season and how it really did improve so much on the comic. 
It seems like the female lead of the first season will return for the second, but the male lead seems unlikely. That does get me a little bit worried because the original plans for a second season would be to make it more of an anthology series, focusing on different characters. So I don't know if she's going to be like a cameo or if she's going to be the main lead again. Hopefully not. But anyway, fingers crossed, I still really enjoy the show and I really recommend it. Moving on to comic news, there's absolutely nothing of importance again, but it does leave room for more reviews. Let's move on to what I read this week. First off is the critical darling, Doomsday Clock number 9. I am still really unsure of what I just read. I mean, I never once thought that I would read a comic where Document had an waxed poetic about the death of Ferrolad. It's just so weird. And that aspect of it isn't even that half bad. It's strange, it's odd, but in solitary, it's kind of okay. The rest is still just a mess. It's been eight issues of stretched out plotting nothing, and then this one whole issue of every prominent hero on Earth taking a giant spaceship to Mars to kick Dr. Manhattan's ass. It's like a fever dream. And then he just knocks them out. Maybe kills them? Who knows? While Ozymandias smirks somewhere. It's just so incredibly rushed and the story still boils down to basically nothing. Lex shows up out of nowhere to be like, hey, Dr. Manhattan is a big deal which we already kind of knew and this entire exchange could have happened back in issue 3. I'm not going to pick it apart too much because there's really not much to delve into. One thing that did surprise and honestly get me kind of hysterical is that we finally get the Charlton heroes in this sequel to Watchmen and they appear for like one panel and the question is the only one who gets more than one line. It's pretty underwhelming. You could have done so much more of the Charlton heroes than what you're doing. So yeah, two thumbs middle. Moving on to the Dreaming number 7. This is the first part of the second arc and the first part of what I think is a two-parter about what Daniel's been up to. And well, it's maybe the weakest issue so far. It's just so incredibly overridden. It's supposed to be flowery and romantic and entwined in that way, but it goes way too far that it almost hits Bendis levels overcooked. I glazed over way too much. And it's to its detriment that it doesn't even have Bill with Evely's wonderful art. I said it before, but in Spurrier's worst moments, Evely's art was able to carry the story on its own and be able to carry you through some of his really, really overextended indulgences. This has no such luck, and the art isn't really that great. It's honestly kind of off-putting. It's too fluid to carry any weight or meaning that it should, and the figures themselves are hard to get a grasp on. Maybe it'll take a few rereads, but it was just hell trying to make it through it even once. Two thumbs down. Next up is Young Justice number 3. I guess I could call this the best issue of the series so far, you know, if it wasn't for everything about Bendis' style of writing. Like the second issue again, the set pieces are more clear and maybe a little more engaging, but Jesus Christ, this dialogue. I might have to put down any of the Bendis books I've been reading to one-line reviews. The dialogue ruins any of the emotional weight of any scene characters talking because that's the long and short of it. We have Superboy and Impulse reuniting and while it should be kind of a fun and easygoing scene that you're really sort of invested in, they just won't shut the fuck up. It also does that ridiculous smash cut to a double page spread whiplash thing that Bendis is insistent on doing and my god it's not as cool as he thinks it is. It's just disorienting. And then we have four pages at the end of the same shot of a manhole with incessant dialogue. This series Wow, one thumb down, one thumb middle, because like I said, there are some things I think people possibly could glean as fun, but I don't know, it's still way dragged down. Oh, and apparently Superboy has a wife and kid, so you know, God bless him. Next up, we have The Immortal Hulk number 14. This is the first issue since the Hell arc, and well, it's 
definitely the most solid issue in a while. It's not without its flaws though. The art is just awful. It tries, the use of darks and angles is pretty good, but the figures are kind of disgusting at times, and the perspectives are insanely wonky in very noticeable places. It's distracting. The story, taking place directly in Betty's mind, and her trying to reconcile her thoughts about her dad, Bruce, her ties to both of them, is very well done. I was really engaged. Engaged in a way I haven't been for this series in a long time. And it sets up some awesome stuff between Bruce and Betty that I hope Ewing bridges together. This might be a bit of a controversial statement, but other writers haven't ever really utilized Betty and Bruce's relationship as superpowered beings to the fullest potential. I can't wait. I really can't. Still, one thumb up, one thumb middle. And lastly, we have the Green Lantern number 5. And wow, this is still just an incredibly entertaining series. Not much really happens in this issue. It's more just Hal Jordan being given a short little trial in order to prove his allegiance to the Dark Stars. But it's still just brief entertaining read. Perhaps the MVP here is still Sharp's art. The way they depict and portray the vampire planet of Vor in terms of the architecture and landscapes is eminently horrifying and disgusting or at least as much as a cape comic can get it's not like requiem level or anything like that but it definitely had the same kind of energy and i was reminded instantly when we get the huge sort of buildings and how they're modeled together it's truly fantastic i had such a great time even on the visuals it does set up a lot more of Hal's mission going forward in this series i can't wait for more of that because it's so incisive and it cuts directly into Hal's character core and i love how Brad she is and so this is putting him in direct conflict with his duties and his overriding sense of morality so fingers crossed that they continue to really develop more of that i can't wait for the next issue two thumbs up moving on to what i watched this week we're gonna start with gotham season five episode eight the Trial of Jim Gordon. This is probably a directly down the middle episode. Half really good, half absolutely terrible. And I'm kinda glad it existed anyway. The episode is split into two stories. One following Gordon having a spirit quest while he's dying, and a Poison Ivy plot where she plans on poisoning all of Gotham with Joker's tainted water. One is a riot, and the other is an insane bore. Gordon's dream journey, where he's put on trial is just so dragging and uninteresting. I can only think that it was included because the episode would have been too short otherwise. It adds nothing that wasn't already cooking within the show and the dynamics of the characters. The Poison Ivy subplot Purely delightful. Everyone getting pheromoned and all zoned out is just hilarious. It's perfectly kooky and inane Gotham goodness. Especially since the only way to snap people out of it is to beat their ass. It's comedy gold at times. They even managed to fit in a siege on the police station set piece, which is a classic Gotham cliche. Bruce, Selina, and Bullock take the forefront and they all do fantastic work in it. Bullock once again being shown as vulnerable in the face of his bomb Gordon and Donald Logue is just so raw right here and I was able get truly invested because plays wounded so well because he gives it his all. Meanwhile, Selena and Bruce finally work on patching the relationship up. Everything with the three of them is firing. And that's not even going into the small gags and jokes that the pheromone shenanigans lead to. Holy shit, even Zaz gets in on the action and his performance is a revelation. Plus, they even get more mileage out of that ridiculous bombsuit Riddler wore with Bullock pulling it on as full body bulletproof armor. And it's just... It's madness and I love it. I really do. So all of that just makes the Gordon stuff so much worse. 
makes it clearer how much of it wastes time. Thankfully, the ending of the episode is actually a bit of an epilogue where, hey, turns out that it was also Gordon could go through character development that allows him to get married and becomes friends with Bullock again. And even Bruce tries to lock it down with Selena. I have to admit, I was so worried that Bruce was going to propose or something because there was one shot where someone mentions wanting to be with someone for the rest of their life and I was really worried, but thankfully he didn't. Although, I have to admit, it's pretty funny that with Gotham, I'm so much more comfortable with 18-year-old Bruce being Batman, but insanely adverse to him getting hitched. That's way too damn young. Still, overall, one thumb up, one thumb down. There's also two-week hiatus coming, which is probably the shortest hiatus that Gotham has ever been on, but it couldn't feel like more of an eternity because of how solid this season has been. So yeah, see you back with Gotham then. Next up, we have Doom Patrol Episode 5, Cult Patrol. This is definitely the kind of episode I was expecting once the pilot ended. The kind of episode where the plot slows down and it becomes episodic. As anyone might remember, I didn't have high expectations for that. But even with this, it was still able to prove me wrong. Sure, the plot is pretty much sidetracked to let this week's story happen because it's so separate and detached, but it's still an entertaining story. The only complaint that I would have is that because the seasonal plot isn't the focus anymore, that it then decides Decides to have a lot of scenes to explain the new problem and it's not very graceful at that. The scenes about chaos magic, the decreator, the gates of Nurnheim just feel kind of insubstantial but where the episode really does shine is again just focusing on the characters rather than the overall plot. Robot Man and Jane in particular share a few hard-hitting scenes that cut right into the middle of their shared arc. I know people still don't really like Jane and I agree that in solitary she isn't that great or entertaining a character but combining paths with Robot Man makes her work for me. I really do enjoy their combined scenes together and I think they're really fantastic and some of the best stuff the show has to offer. The button to their conflict in this episode is honestly kind of perfect but the real highlight of this episode is that Rita finally starts to get her due, bonding with this episode's person in need of help and actually starting to get a grip of her powers. It was this amazing wild blockbuster moment where she actually does stretch rather than collapse into a disgusting blob monster. I kind of lost it and it made you realize just how much work had gone into really selling that and earning that that moment. The show is really just so good. So yeah, this episode is a lot more flaky than the previous ones, but it still shines. Larry might get really less to do here. We get some more intrigue on the mystery of the negative spirit. It's definitely something that's only there to be set up rather than, you know, developed anymore. So he gets a little bit of short thrift and the plot instigator, Willoughby Kipling, he's entertaining enough, but I feel like he doesn't go over the top enough or is subdued enough in either direction to stand out amongst the general tone of the show. And I feel like that was probably a little bit of a waste. He gets some good lines here there but it's not something that I feel was very memorable. Still though, it's apparently a two-parter and I hope that the second part keeps up the momentum and does help carry things through because it really depends on whether or not it lands and how it actually does continue to keep the ball rolling. One thumb up, one thumb middle. Alright, so we're going to head into the spoiler-filled Captain Marvel review. If you don't want to have spoilers, then go to the description, skip to the time code, and you'll get a brief, truncated, spoiler-free review. But anyway, check that out now. We're heading into the review right here. Okay, so I'm just going to get right on with it. It's not bad, or maybe it's just that it's not as horrible as the rest of the MCU's worst ones can be. It's hard to tell what's coloring my perception more. If you like the MCU as a whole, then this sits soundly in the middle of any ranking. Doctor Strange, the first two Thors, Ant-Man the Wasp, all still very much worse than this. It's just not as good or as interesting as the better ones. It's very by the numbers and unsurprising. That's not to say that it should be out there and creative, but it doesn't 
doesn't really make anything of its own as a film that you can actually pinpoint. I might not like the first Guardians of the Galaxy or the Captain America sequels, but they all had some signature mark that you could definitely tie to that movie. Captain Marvel doesn't really do that. It more or less props itself up on having scenes that are prequel foreshadowing to other movies or just following beat by beat action, some plot development action, plot development, that kind of structure. And it kind of becomes hard to remember after a while after you've seen it. It's just a superhero movie. It could be a generic non-brand superhero movie and you would never know the difference. Still, that's not a direct call out on its quality. Mediocre, forgettable, and kind of bland is still better than terrible. It has some good set pieces, a half okay storyline, and a sense of plotting that allows it to feel like it's actually telling a genuine story. The execution and everything else can be really messy, but that's something that I have to give it in terms of how horrible other MCU efforts can be. Again, that's probably coloring my review here. Larson and Jackson also have some chemistry and it makes interactions pretty enjoyable. I wish the trailers had played that up because Larson was done a real disservice by those clips. She's not magnetic, she's not electric, but she's still allowed to show much more personality than what was shown in those trailers. I'm not going to go piece by piece in this movie because it's like every other standard movie. But there are two things I would like to get into. And it's two things that always irk the fuck out of me. The first, smaller thing is that the amnesia plot really doesn't add anything because it's really straightforward. Bypassing the amnesia could have led to some really engaging and interesting, especially if they didn't change anything else about the background of the plot. After everything is revealed, it comes off so cheap and as a way to pad out time to have a huge twist. It's pointless. And in general, Carol's development is really stunted and you don't really get a sense of her character. It's hard to really kind of gauge because she's been withheld from agency for so long. But it doesn't have the same kind of impact and oomph that it could have if you didn't have that style of plot. The second thing is that, well, the twist kind of ruins a lot of this movie because they really stretch things thin in order to make it work. There is one specific thing about the twist that always irks me. It's something that I've seen in so many movies and shows and it's a twist that the main character has been taught in an environment and has grown in an environment that is evil but they thought was good. It never makes sense for one big reason. What happens when those people in the environment in that society, in that community, find out. And it's always the singular main character that has the problem with it, no one else. But this goes the extra mile of making it so that Marvel had that problem too, which makes it extra weird. Because how do they ever expect to keep up that ruse and have people going along with it if reneging against it is a clear possibility anyway? It just feels like a half measure, but that's really all you would have to do. Mention an internal resistance structure, but the movie doesn't think about it, so you don't have to think about it either. It's just so lazy, and I hate it every time. Also, outside of the unfeasibility of the Kree lie, it runs into the same problems that movies and shows that do this and do it to the hilt have, where until the twist is revealed, the scrolls do kind of evil things anyway. And once everything is shown to the audience, they're suddenly all puppy cats. Again, maybe have both sides be evil pricks and Carol have to renege against both. It's not like Kree haven't been dicks in the comics before, so that could have been fun. Who knows? Or maybe have Carol actually believe in the conquering Kree armada and then have the scrolls actually be helpless, harmless refugees that the movie is trying to portray them as and her having to grow as a person in order to break free from that mindset. Maybe some dimension because Carol isn't very dimensional here. Like I said, she has the amnesia plot. Like, it's very flat. Anyway, yeah, those two points really get on my nerves. The movie as a whole though, it's boring, but it's okay. It has some stupid jokes and gags, but nothing worse than the MCU has ever done. Maybe that'll be enough for people. I'd give it a rental, two thumbs middle, or a five out of 10. Anyway, if you skipped ahead to the time code, you should have been dropped off here. Here's my spoiler free review of Captain Marvel. I'll keep it short because that's kind of all this movie has to offer. It's not very engaging. It's not very interesting. It doesn't stand well on its own and it doesn't really do anything interesting 
something to make it stand out or be memorable as its own separate entry in the MCU. There are some funny jokes. The actors try to do a great job of what they're given. But overall, the movie is honestly really kind of flat. It's not terrible. It sits soundly within the middle of the MCU in terms of ranking, but does have a wide berth on either end. Five out of five, two thumbs middle. Anyway, let's move on to listener questions. We have a couple this week. Our first one comes from Isaiah. And their question is, is there a comic you think is really good, but you don't like? And I have to say the answer to that would be Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. I'm not disparaging the craft and the talent that went into it. I just really don't like it. Really don't enjoy it as a Swamp Thing storyline and overall I kind of just prefer the more pulpy more bombastic style and tone of the original Len Wein and Bernie Wrights and stuff. I think that at times could be a lot more interesting and even a lot more sort of horrifying than the stuff that Alan Moore introduced which was a lot more sort of mystical, spiritual and eloquent. I think that it definitely lost a lot of its charm for me with his run. Again I'm not saying that it's bad and I think it's honestly a masterful run but I just don't like it. So I hope that answer your question, Isaiah. And it was a great one. Our next question comes from the ever great Illuminated, whose links you can find below. And their question is, popular character design choices you don't like. Wow, we're being really negative today, but let's get on right into it. I'm going to have to say a lot of the DCAU's character design choices. Now this has to do with a lot of their creative design choices throughout the shows. So I'm talking about Batman Beyond. The Batman Beyond suit, a lot of people like it. It never worked for me. I think it works mainly for like say Terry and how young he is and how super stylish futuristic it's meant to be but a lot of people say that they want it to be like Bruce's main suit and like it does not look good on Bruce at all that origin episodes and whenever we see Bruce wear that suit in the DCAU is just awful like his build doesn't work for it it's meant to be sleek and Bruce is like a powerhouse tank it just doesn't look good at all I also feel the same way about say like the Justice Lords I know people like the Justice Lord designs I think they all look just garish and honestly kind of ugly at times and then we also have say like big barda's design which i think carried more from just her casual wear which was weird like we just saw her more or less in her casual wear like why she has full-on armor but somehow that became her default costume for a dcau and it was just weird and odd and i never thought that dcau did much justice to the new gods anyway but yeah dcau has some really great designs their version of toy man was fantastic and then you have some really lame ones like so yeah i wasn't here all the time they had some good ones but i'm glad that that franchise isn't around to plague us anymore and funnily enough we have the companion quest from Norrin Radical and their question is disliked character designs that I love all right so having taken some time to think about it has to be Bad Rock and some of Liefeld's young blood team while they weren't all heavy hitters well you have Shaft obviously Shaft looks fantastic Bad Rock as a design and concept he's a clear thing XP but I think he works and I think there are elements and stuff like say Chapel or Sentinel where they have base core design attributes that do get played up and that definitely had a lot of potential that other artists really capitalized on and made unique. And I'm not saying that they're great or that they're genuinely well designed, but I think that a lot of these things do look a little cool. Like you have Supreme's design. I know he gets changed around a lot, but there's something very minimal about that. And then when you have Alan Moore come on with Rick Veitch and Chris Sprouse, they are able to take those core tenets and make something, well, honestly, very monolithic about it. Very iconic. 
out of something that really isn't iconic at all. And so that's why I feel about a lot of Liefeld's designs. But for being general, I have to say that period of time when all of the X-Men got flight jackets, hell yeah. Let's bring that back. That was brilliant and I loved it. So yeah, that's my answer to your question, Norin. And I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you enjoyed that too illuminated. You both give me a run for my money. Oh boy, this was a minefield. Our last question comes from at Mitch Gosser, and their question is, who is my favorite Doom Patrol member? Now, my favorite member would have to be Ambush Bug. Nah, just kidding. Let's go with Robot Man, because in the comics, Robot Man has always been a really great lightning rod for all these kinds of stories that hit so many things on my personal checklist, and I love them. They're always so hard-hitting. They really do immerse because they're just something so, so intact and so unbreakable about his character core that is astonishing. It reminds me so much of Alec Holland and Swamp Thing and the depths to which writers can take that character and I love it. I love Robot Man, I love the Doom Patrol and I love the show and it's a great time. Thank you for this question Mitch. I hope I answered it to the best of my ability and I just want to thank everyone out there who sent in a question. It means so much. These were great questions. I had so much fun answering them. Well I'm just so grateful because your questions keep the show going and it's humbling. It really is. Thank you so much. I just want to say that if anyone out there has their own questions or comments or thoughts that they want to hear discuss on the show you can always find me on twitter at t-h-e underscore s-n-i-c-k-m-a-n i also want to give a shout out to the cover artist for the show at d-o-t-e-m-c-e-e they really deserve it so please check them out anyway i just want to say that i hope you have a great week and see you next time